I've just got a, a question for you. We're starting a new series today. I've just got a question for you. I'm going to give you about 20 seconds to turn to the person next to you to answer this question. Um, think back to your young, earliest memories that you can actually remember. What was the first thing as a little kid that you wanted to be when you grew up? What was the thing? What was it? I wanted to be a... What was that? You've got 20 seconds. Person next to you. What was it? I imagine not a single one of you said in the list of stuff, when I grow up, I want to be miserable. <laughs> None of us said that, did we? I mean, I know we, I, that wasn't quite the question. But as, as a child, none of us set out in life, I want to be, when I'm older, miserable and unhappy. That's my aim in life. That's my goal. Misery upon misery, please. None of us say that. None of us wanted it as a kid. None of us want it as an adult. None of us start the beginning of the year and go, this year, I resolve to be more miserable than last year. This year, my goal is to be deeply unhappy. No, no, every single one of us wants to be happy. We're starting today a, a four-week uh, kind of mini-series called The Happy Life, which is really just four weeks to look at how to be happy. We all want to be happy. It's why we have New Year's resolutions. It's why we resolve at the beginning of the year, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, because I think these are the things that are going to make me happy. And if you're a Christian here today, or even if you're not, if you're just looking in, you've just experienced a bit of life, you know that one of the problems that we have when we look for happiness is that we so often look in all the wrong places. We know it won't really give us, make us happy, but we want it anyway. Or we pursue it because we think it really would, and then because we've experienced life, we know that actually, ultimately, it didn't really satisfy in the way we wanted it to. So it might have done, had happiness for a little bit, but actually it's kind of, it's not all that great, it kind of stopped or ran out or left me or broke or died or just, that was it. It was an experience that was good, but nothing left. And we shouldn't really be surprised by that. Because if you just think about it logically, if you want something that provides lasting, lasting um, true happiness, then it needs to be something that is both lasting and true. Things that are temporary in nature, by their definition, by logic, they, they fade, they break, they stop. And so if you're looking for happiness in something that is temporary, you're never really going to find it. If you want to know true and lasting happiness, you need to find it in something that is true, that is lasting, that will not perish, that will not fade, that does not change, won't die, won't run out, won't break, won't give up on you. I don't want to spoil the rest of the series for the people who are going to be standing here speaking, but essentially for the next four weeks, we're going to say this. True happiness is only found in something that is everlasting, that does not perish, that does not fade, that does not fail. True happiness is only ever found in God. Now, if you're a Christian here today, you know that. And so often our New Year's resolutions, if we bother with them, they're not so much resolutions because you think, well, actually, three days in, I'll have given up on that. So instead, what I'll do is I'll just resolve to be more holy this year. And you, I won't ask you what yours actually were, but generally, if you're a Christian, they go something along the lines of, I'll be holier this year, I'm going to be healthier this year because I want to be happier this year. And we know as Christians that we're supposed to be the happiest people alive on the planet. We know that uh, Jesus' words from John 16, you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. We know that's supposed to be for us. 
We know that the next chapter when Jesus in John 17 says, prays for us that we would have the full measure of his joy within them. We know that that is supposed to characterize us. And we know that joy isn't found in the material things of this world. It's why we have a kind of annual reset of how to live. We remind ourselves that being a Christian does not mean everything will go swimmingly well for you. It does not mean come to Jesus and suddenly everything's amazing. We know that there's no promise that life's a bed of roses, but we also know that we should still, despite of our circumstances, experience and know joy and happiness. So we recite Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 where he says we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing and yet possessing all things. The truth is though, we're often quite good at the sorrow and the poverty and the nothing bit and we're not so good with the rejoicing and the enriching and the possessing everything bit. I tend to think of myself as quite a positive, happy kind of person. My wife completely disagrees with me. Because <laughs> the truth be told, I'm, I'm, I'm naturally a little bit uh, pessimistic probably. I'm naturally a little bit mm, about some things. Sometimes some things make me uh, smile. But the, re- <laughs> the rest of life, mm, I, but here's the thing. I've read this and I know, because I believe this to be true, that I should know joy and I should know contentment. I should know happiness. So a question I continually ask myself, and especially at the beginning of a year, is why is my joy not relentless? That's the joy described in the Bible. Why is it not for me? Why do things affect me so much? Because they do. Why? And the answer, if I'm honest with myself, is that all too often my happiness is determined by my feelings. It's determined by emotion, my emotions, how I feel about something. And here's the thing. Feelings are powerful. Our emotions are often the most powerful force in our lives, which is absolutely fine and okay when they're feeling good. When we're feeling peace and joy and contentment, everything's great. But what happens when we don't feel like that? What happens when they're not good? What happens when we feel anxiety or fear or anger or regret or sorrow or just sadness and hopelessness and bleakness? These are powerful, powerful feelings. And our emotions, our feelings, if you like, they're a bit like big muscles. They can kind of bully our minds and they can bully our consciences and they can bully our wills. Even when we know, so much so that even when we know something is true, without a shadow of a doubt, we know that's true, our feelings can dictate about whether we believe it or not. So where do our feelings come from? Well, they don't come from our circumstances. They actually come from how we think about our circumstances. You see, two people can look at the exact same situation and walk away in two very different moods because they think about the circumstances differently. This happened just to us over this Christmas. I've got three kids, seven, five, and three, and we're getting to the age, the older two, not the little ones so much, getting to the age of introducing them to board games. Now, this is a bit of an issue because I, I'm, I kind of, I hate board games, and I hate board games really because actually I love them. I just am really aggressively competitive when it comes to it. Like I played my brother-in-law at Monopoly once 14 years ago. We've never played since. And we won't ever again. And he's nodding his head. <laughs> because I'm one of those supremely aggressive, supremely competitive people. So I'm taking this as an opportunity to now to instill this in my children. Because if you think about it as a Christian, there isn't many opportunities in life where you get to crush someone and it's okay. <laughs> Board games are one of them. All right, And so I'm trying to instill this into my children, that that attitude of punish them and punish them now. This is the way it gets good. We were playing a game 
That's a wonderful game of Monopoly with our children. And there came a moment where one of my children had the opportunity to do just this, to crush the other one. And the beauty of Monopoly is not only do you win and crush them in that moment, they can't play anymore and you can carry on, so they have to go. And I was like, take it, take the opportunity, take it, this is it, this is your moment. And that particular child just looked ever so sweet and went, I'm not going to do that because I want everyone to carry on playing together nicely. In that moment, my wife goes, Oh, we are not failing as parents. This is wonderful. I'm like, we have completely failed. I'm not playing. And march off. Same situation, exact same facts. We interpret it very, very differently and have very, very different moods. Now, that's a slightly silly example. It's a true example, but it's a slightly silly example. But that's the reality. Same facts, different feelings. Not based on the circumstances, but how you feel about the circumstances. See, here's the thing. Our hopes of happiness depend largely, not exclusively, but largely on getting our thoughts about the facts right. Most unhappy people, not everyone, but most unhappy people are unhappy not because of their situation. I'm not trying to pretend their situation is easy or good. But they're unhappy not because of their situation, but because they let their feelings rule their thoughts or they think about things the wrong way. And in the happy life, we've given this the title, facts are greater than feelings. You see, a key to happiness is not to ignore our emotions. It's not to suppress them or deny them. Emotions, feelings, they're not a problem. The Bible is full of them. A key to happiness is to learn to not be ruled by them. To not be ruled by our emotions. To not be dictated to by our feelings. And this means we have to learn to think differently. And that starts with where and how you are influenced. So let's have a look at what the Bible says. We're going to be in the Bible for the whole of this series. We're going to be in Psalms, the book of Psalms this week, chapter 1, because this here is a guide to how to be happy. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law... Of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here's the first thing to say happiness in this life is possible. It's not some unachievable goal, it's not some, whoa, dangle it out there, you're never gonna get it. (laughs) No, it actually is possible. Now, we tend to, how do I know that? Because it tells us here. We tend to think of Psalms as a songbook, which they are, but Psalm 1 tells us actually also Psalms are an instruction manual in happiness. Look at that very first word blessed. In Hebrew, it's a word, ashray. It's different words to kind of, we don't really have a word for that in English. It's a different word from the one that is God blessing us. That's barak. Really, it's a, a trans, best translated ashray as being kind of like happy. Okay, so happy is the person who delights in the law. Law means, is the word Torah. Torah just means instruction. That's the first five books of the Bible, the instruction. So happy is the person who delights in the instruction of the Lord. Straight away, it's telling us, here's an instruction manual for happiness. Happiness is possible, and, but the Psalms tell us the word of God is the basis for all happiness. Nothing else. And the one who delights in this, let's carry on, verse 3, the one who delights in this is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So this psalm is an instruction in happiness. 
And at root, it's saying that happiness comes from delighting in God. And this psalm says you have a choice. In fact, the whole psalm is a bit of a contrast between righteousness and wickedness, between the ways of the world and the ways of God. But it's not just a contrast about them. It's actually, it's actually about being influenced from one place or the other. The contrast is about how we are shaped, what influences us, what shapes our thinking, where we take our cue from, how we interpret the things that happen to us in life, how we feel, how we act, what we do, what really what shapes our emotions, what shapes our feelings. And this psalm says you can follow God's way or you can follow the world's way. And the promise here is that you follow God's ways and you will prosper. You will know Asherah. You will be blessed. You will know happiness. Or you follow the world's ways and you won't. Verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's what's going on here. There are two ways to live, and there are two results to that way of living. And how you live depends hugely hugely on where you are being influenced from. See, a huge key to happiness is this. Where are you taking your cue from? Where are you being influenced from? You see, there's only two influences on our lives. Every single one of us, there are only two influences on our lives. There's the Word of God, and there's a world in which we are living. And if you're not actively being influenced by one, you will actively be influenced by the other. And if you're not actively being influenced by the word of God, getting it in you to allow you to shape you, you will be passively and actively influenced by the world. It's not neutral. It's not okay to sit there and go, well, I'm not being actively influenced by that. But really, the world's having no real effect on me. Yes, it is. Every single minute of every single day, every single message of the world is bombarding you all the time. Everything you watch, everything you read, everything you listen, everything you scroll through, every message of culture is all screaming at you and it's not neutral it's contrary to the gospel and so if you're not actively feeding yourself and filling yourself and being influenced by the word of God you will actively be influenced by the world you just cannot help it no one is strong enough to withstand what culture says if we're not feeding ourselves with something different there's two influences the word and the world and here's why this is important And this is why this is really crucial to your happiness, because they are saying wildly different things. They're not kind of, well, kind of the same message, just with a few extra rules thrown in. No, they're saying completely opposite things. The world says, do whatever you need to do, whatever makes you happy, do it, and you will know happiness. So whatever whatever makes you happy, that's the thing, just do it. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, not doing anything illegal, go for it, it's fine. That will make you happy. The word says... If you seek happiness directly, you're never going to find it. The word says, if you make happiness your aim, if that's the thing that you pursue, whatever, you're never actually going to find it. You'll taste a bit and then you'll realize it's not actually making you happy. And the word says, seek righteousness. And you'll soon realize that the less you're concerned about your happiness and the more you are concerned about God and honoring him and pursuing him, then ironically, in the economy of God, the happier you get. Seek first his kingdom and all these things are added to you. It's if I die to this happiness thing, pursuing that, seek first him in the economy of God. As I do that, the happier I get. I've known this to be true in my own life. When I've been pursuing God more than anything else, do you know what? I'm actually quite happy. Know quite a bit of joy when I pursue other things, even good things, even things I quite like and are fun. They just don't satisfy in the same way and I'm not at a gut level actually deeply happy and full of joy. 
But you can't trick God. Okay, well, if that's the answer, what I'll do is I'll say, hey, God, I'm following you. I'm dying to happiness and that. And I'll get, no, no, no. You can't fool the all-powerful, all-knowing God. You're either seeking him with everything you've got or you're not. And you can trick other people around you, but you can't fool him. He knows all and he sees all. And so we need to learn to delight in the ways of God. And then in the economy of God, as we do that, happiness becomes kind of a byproduct. Aim at that, you'll never reach it. Aim at that and you'll get that in the process. Other reason, other way the world is very different is what's the mantra of pretty much every Disney film? Follow your heart. The world says, follow your heart. And the word says, no, follow the Lord's heart. You see, following our hearts is what gets us into all sorts of problems. It's exactly the moment we start following our hearts that all our emotions and our feelings kick in and they begin to dictate to us and bully us and tell us what to do and cause us all sorts of problems. See, our biggest problems in life are actually heart problems and they occur because we begin to follow our hearts rather than directing our hearts. Proverbs 23:19 says, Be wise and direct your heart in the way. Don't be influenced by your heart. Direct your heart in the way. And this is why we need to be influenced by the word of God, because it teaches us what the way is. And it helps us spot the deceit of the world that promises happiness, but always fails to deliver. See, that's the thing with the world. It's all based around that. If you have this, if you achieve this, if you get that house, that job, that lifestyle, live in that place, know that thing, have that relationship, that clothing, that whatever it is, you'll know happiness. That will be success. And it's not true. You might know a little bit. You might for a little bit of time. But ultimately we know it ends up choking us and things go very wrong. Follow your heart is terrible advice. Think about David for a moment. The guy who wrote most of the Psalms. He was, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. And what qualified David to be king was that he followed God's heart. And when he did, things went very, very well for him. But when David didn't follow God's heart, when David followed his own heart, he did not do so well. See, when David followed his heart, he slept with Bathsheba and he committed murder and he brought devastating evil onto his household to the extent his child died. When David followed his own heart, he ended up taking a census that God said don't take and 70,000 people died. The Bible is full of loads of other examples that warn us, don't follow your own hearts. When Moses followed his heart, he ended up killing an Egyptian. When Balaam followed his own heart, he was rebuked by a donkey. When Nebuchadnezzar followed his own heart, he ended up eating grass like an ox. When Haman followed his own heart, he ended up hanging from the gallows that he built. When the disciples followed their own heart, they ended up arguing about who was the greatest and in terror fled from the Garden of Gethsemane. When Ananias and Sapphira followed their own heart, they ended up lying to the Holy Spirit and they dropped dead as a result. The Bible's really pretty clear. Follow your heart is terrible advice. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Matthew 15 verse 19 says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. That's when you say something, I didn't mean it. Yeah, you did. You just shouldn't have let it come out of your mouth. The issue came from your heart, not your lips. And here's the thing. No one lies to us more than our own hearts. 
And unless we're speaking truth to our hearts and we're learning to direct our hearts, unless we're intentionally taking Romans 12.2 and not being conformed to this world but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, unless we're intentionally renewing our minds in order to direct our hearts, then we will be influenced by the world and how the world operates and we'll end up following the things of the world and we'll end up drifting towards our emotions and our feelings and allowing them to direct us and guide us and lead us and dominate us. And the drift towards following your heart is really quite gradual. No one starts off going, out of my mouth, I want to have adultery and theft and slander. That's what I'm going to do today. No, no, no. But the drift is gradual. We see it here in verse 1. Walking becomes standing, becomes sitting. Just begin to look at that and think, actually, if we could just have that house, that would make everything better, that whole house. Yeah, and God wants us to have good things and... Actually, I can see why God would want us to do that because that's got. And then it goes a bit more. Actually, we really need that now. That is the thing. That, I will get that. And as soon as we got that, I'll know God's with me. God, it's not happening. God, you're not with me. And then before we know it, we're like, boom, over here, miles away. And it happens on anything. The slide is just so very, very gradual. And this is why we need to ensure. This is why we need to be very intentional about being influenced by the word of God and the word of God alone and directing our hearts and directing our emotions and our feelings to be in line with what God says. And this is not a one-time thing. Well, I've read the Bible. I'm now influenced by it. No, no, no. It's an ongoing thing. We see here in verse 3, the picture in verse 3 is that as a Christian, you are planted. Nothing to do with you. You are planted in streams of living water. God puts you there. And the life, the streams of living water flow from him. And it's like a picture of a tree and we kind of have roots that go down. And it's, we need to feed the tree. You need to feed the plant. I'm a bit limited in my understanding of biology. GCSE, single science will do that to you. But basically, I know that trees and plants and stuff have roots and they need to be fed in order for it to grow healthy and it's not mechanical it's not automatic you're planted in streams of living water but you need to cultivate the feeding you need to be the one who learns to fix yourself and delight yourself and meditate on and feed yourself with the truth of the word of God you need to cultivate those roots you need to be influenced by the word so that we live according to God's plans because the promise of verse 3 here is that the righteous Those who live God's way will prosper. And verse 4, the wicked, those who live their own way, will perish, eternally speaking. And the truth is, we don't spend anywhere near enough time thinking about eternity. We sit so caught up in the here and now, we think it's all just about this life. And it's not. Eternity is a very, very long time. And this is why it's important. Because we can often look right here and right now in this life and think, hang on, the righteous are supposed to do really well and the wicked are supposed to perish? It seems like it's the other way around to me. It seems like an awful lot of wickedness that seems to be flourishing and the righteous, they don't seem to be doing so well. And even if we don't think like that, there can be moments if we're not careful, if we're thinking of the, along the lines of the world rather than the word, we can look at our lives and we think, well, I don't seem to be doing much flourishing at the moment. God, what are you doing? What is going on? Maybe you're not all you're supposed to be. I'll do this myself, thanks. And it's in those moments where we don't feel like we're flourishing in the same way that feelings of anxiety, anger, regret, sorrow, grief, hopelessness, it's when they rear their ugly head. And in those moments, if we are not influenced by the word of God, then we're going to make unwise decisions based on our feelings. 
rather than life-giving decisions based on the word of God. Now, we know that these verses don't mean that life's supposed to be a bed of roses for us. We know from experience that being a Christian does not make you immune to pain and suffering. And here's the thing. This is why this is important, because if you are not being influenced by what God says, when pain and trial come, which they surely will, you're going to be left at a loss. And you're going to start judging God's love for you by your circumstances rather than judging your circumstances by God's love. If you're not influenced by the word, you're going to start looking at all the stuff that's going wrong and think, well, God doesn't really care about me. He doesn't love me very much. And you're going to go into a spiral of downward pity, which is going to cause you all sorts of problems rather than, okay, I do not understand, but I'm influenced by God. I'm going to see him for who he is and I'm going to judge these circumstances like that, not the other way around. And there's a big difference because truth does not change. And if it's true when things are seemingly good in your life, then it's just as true when they're not. And the truth is we can get so caught up in temporal things, so fixated on the immediacy of circumstances when God is way more bothered about eternal things. He's way more bothered about what's going to be happening to you in 10,000 years than he is right now. And everything he's doing is with that eternal big picture perspective. And we, this, the reason why this is important is because we all have a choice. Because what we delight in in this age, we will inherit for eternity. Where we put our trust now, we're going to inherit for all of eternity. And ultimately, we see from these verses, the wicked cannot withstand the judgment of God. You see, from God's perspective, the wicked have no future. Neither does anyone else who follows the ways of this world. But verse 6 is such good news for those who love and know God because he knows you. And so you are blessed. He, if you're a Christian here today, he knows you. And you are blessed. Now, you might look at your life right now and think, what are you on about? I'm not really feel that blessed. But here's where the facts are greater than your feelings. Because if you're a Christian, you, um, because of Jesus, you are blessed, you are secure, you are accepted, you are loved. And so we have so much to be happy about. And we need to direct our hearts to the unchanging truth of the word of God that we're loved by the one true living God. That God is our perfect father. That we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That the Holy Spirit is sanctifying and empowering us and he who started a good work will bring it to completion that our sins have been completely forgiven that we have been justified and adopted into God's worldwide and heavenwide family that we have all the promises of God and that they've all find their yes and amen and in Christ and because we're now in Christ they're all coming our way too and that everything is working together for our good and that God is our God and God is our guide and God lives in the same power he lives in our hearts the same power that conquered the grave lives in me and Jesus has prepared a place for me in heaven and he will welcome me when I get there. What mind, heart, soul, body strengthening joy God gives us in the gospel. And this is what it is ultimately to be blessed, to be happy. And this is what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So many people get this wrong. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As if it's some kind of magic mantra to suddenly become a superhero. No, it's not. 
It means that if life is great, I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. And if life is difficult, especially when life is difficult, I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. And when tomorrow comes and the mundane, boring, normal nature of normal life happens, I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. And if he calls me and grants me and gives me an opportunity to go on great adventures on this earth, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if I never move out of a square mile of this building for the rest of my life, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if things come... Or things go, if people come or people go, opportunities come, opportunities go, money comes, money goes, houses come, houses go, all the rest of it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the gospel. And this is not positive thinking. This is truth. And it's truth that does not change. And we need to change our thinking so that we're not influenced by the world, but by the word. And this is not just some high level out there. Well, this is okay for Sunday stuff, but you don't understand what I've got to do tomorrow. But James, I get it. I do understand. Honestly, I do. I get it. I've got a savior. I've got a God. But I've still got to deal with that person tomorrow. And I've still got this grief. And I've still got that relationship. And I've got still this money issue. And I've got this situation and circumstance. You don't really understand. How's this help me? I said at the beginning, this is an instruction manual in happiness. And it is. Not just up there, but a down here too. And Psalm 77 shows us how this works in reality. Shows us how this works on the ground. Show us how facts are greater than feelings and show us how we deal with, on an everyday sort of basis, whatever the trouble it is that you face. This is a psalm from a guy called Asaph. And the facts of the situation that he faces, he does not define in detail. He looks at the facts and he calls them, verse two, he calls it the day of my trouble, which is a deliberately general description so that you're not thinking, well, that's not anything to do with me. You can read yourself right into this particular moment. So what do we know about Asaph? Well, we don't know exactly what the facts are, but we see here what he thinks about the facts. And he considers the troubles of life, and he determines here that God has rejected him. He thinks, well, God doesn't love me. In fact, God's broken his promises to me. God's even changed his character here in verses 7 to to 9. And as a result, if you look in verse 5, it says, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord, sorry, that was verse 6, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Verse 5, I consider the days of old. Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever? Basically what he's saying is, in the olden days, God was good. Now he's left me. And my future is rubbish. My past was good, my future that's rubbish. He feels abandoned. He feels pessimistic. He feels distressed. He's overwhelmed. Verse 2, my soul refuses to be comforted. He's perplexed to the point that when he thinks about God, verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. I mean, that's pretty bad. Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go again. That, that, you've got pretty bad when you're moaning. That's how bad he feels. So we don't know exactly what the facts are, but we know what he feels about the facts. So here's the question. Can he change his circumstances? Can he change the situation? Can he change the facts that he faces? Well, we see no evidence here in this psalm that he can change the facts or that he does. There's no evidence in this situation that it changed or got better. There's no, well, when God removes this for me, then I will do this, this, and this. No, no, as far as we can see, nothing changes. Instead, the next question is, can he change his thoughts about the facts? Can he change how he feels? Well, at the end of verse 9, he pauses, Selah, and he takes time to be quiet, to still his soul, to calm down, to not follow his heart, but instead to direct his heart. And when he does that, look what happens, new thoughts begin to form, 
New feelings begin to emerge that transform his thinking, his perspective, his outlook. And in verses 10 to 12, he deliberately forces his mind to think new thoughts. He says, I'm not going to think like this anymore. And he resolves, verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. You know, this is not just about thinking better. This is about believing better. It's not just about changing thought patterns in his head, but faith patterns in his heart. This is cultivating the roots. This is right back to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 for a moment. Delight. This is the delighting in. This is the meditating on. This is the giving attention to the promises, to the word of God. This is driving it deep into my heart. Yes, these are the circumstances and the facts that I'm facing, but this is the truth of who God is and who I am in result. And none of this is going to change any of this. And so I'm going to speak it to myself again and again and again. I'm going to take this truth of who God is and what he's done and what he is doing and what he's yet to do and who I am in Christ and I'm going to drive it deep down into my soul until no longer will these things dictate how I feel or how I live but the truth of the word of God and he says I will not judge God's love for me by my circumstances but I will judge my circumstances by God's love see truth does not change my emotions and my feelings they can and they will but truth does not so where does Asaph end How's he feeling now? Well, judging by his words in verses 13 to 20, there's a very different tone in his voice now. He no longer questions God's character or questions his existence or questions his providence, but now he praises him. And he says in verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, have redeemed your people. You see, instead of doubt, there is now confidence. Instead of pessimism, there's now optimism. Instead of vulnerability, there's now security. Instead of distress, there is now comfort. His facts have not changed, but his feelings have. Because with the help of God's word, he has changed his thoughts about the facts. So a key, not the, but a key to happiness is to slowly, steadily, gradually feed yourself on the word of God. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Bread, not cake. Cake is something you eat and occasionally as a treat and stuff your face and, hey, it's great, but then it all, mm. bread is what you need to live off. Replace it for potatoes or whatever it is you like. <laughs> it's that jollof rice, yeah. It's that stuff you need to keep you going. It's that stuff that gives you sustenance. It's that stuff that keeps you growing healthily. You need to get it into you the word into you and allow it to influence you and direct your heart. You need to learn to follow God's heart, which you get from feeding on God's word rather than following your own. So here's the thing as we end. Feelings are gauges, not guides. A guide is I have to follow this and do this. A gauge is a warning sign that I'm feeling like this, so I need to replace this with some other truth. If I'm feeling hopeless as a feeling and as an emotion, it's a good indicator to me that I need to know hope and the truth of God. If I'm feeling miserable, it's a good indicator to me that I need to know joy and the joy of the Lord is my strength. If I'm feeling negative, I need to know something of the truth of God. Feelings, we don't suppress them, we don't dismiss them. We take them as a gauge and say, okay, I'm not going to go the way of the world, I'm going to go the way of God and I'm going to choose to believe the truth over my feelings. And as I learn to direct my feelings, I begin to know and walk in and experience the fullness of life that God desires for me.
than I truly know. Ashrei, be blessed, be happy. Let's pray.